fall into the theology bit. The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, unlike a bottomless pit where, of course, you die of dehydration. I'm your host, Samson Kovach, and welcome to this, well, I guess it's number 15 in the series we're doing on the application of the atonement, uh, what it means that Christ died for us. Now, I left off in the last one um, talking about uh, the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, and because that's my view, I don't want to, I don't know, kind of put it in place of all the other views. I don't want it to seem like I'm defending just that view. And you know, I don't put up a fight for any of the other views. And I don't attack this view. So today, I am going to spend some time attacking my own view. You are going to listen to me sit here and struggle with myself. Now, I've just been thinking about this a lot this past week. I, I don't have um, a lot of notes. I don't even know right now what direction I'm going to go with it. This is kind of a, um, let's say, a free-floating um, theology pit for me today. I am just going to sit here and I am going to talk about what I believe and I'm going to question myself and I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer myself to be honest um, I can I can do that with other views because I already know the answers to the other views that I would give and, and they're in my arguments against it and you know but when you're arguing against yourself, the reason why you believe what you believe generally is because you think that there's right and there are no good arguments uh, against your belief. You know, if there was, well, then you would probably abandon your belief and, and go to the other side. So I'm going to spend some time really fighting with myself from you know, some of the past things that we've talked about and say, well, okay, if you believe that we are justified by faith alone, how do you explain this? How do you explain that? Why do you hold to this? And why do you hold to that? And so I think it's going to be kind of fun, but also kind of challenging here because I really don't know where I'm going to go. And since I haven't planned for this, I'm just going to try to do it off the top of my head. Um, I am going to, I think I'm going to have a difficult time finding the answers for my own belief, but um, I think it's good to do. So well, here goes. Okay, so I say that justification is forensic, that God has said that I am righteous and therefore I am. It wasn't based on anything I've done. It wasn't based on anything that I can do. Because of this, I believe that my salvation is secure, that it's eternal, that basically I am being drug kicking and screaming into the kingdom, so to speak. I have no real control over this. I might think that I do because... I, I want to be with God. I want to be with Christ. I, I want to worship him. I want to 
pray. I want to evangelize in the way that I'm doing to have this ministry to spend my time uh, studying these things and and talking about these things and, and doing these podcasts. Uh, these podcasts take a lot of time to do. The amount of study that I've done over the years takes a lot of time. I could be doing a lot of other things uh, besides this. I could leave this up to, you know, what we consider the professionals. I could leave it up to the pastors. I could leave it up to, you know, people who make a living uh, doing theology in this way. But there's something in me that's driving me that just makes me want to do this. And I've, I've spent time where I didn't do this sort of stuff. And because of it, it, I don't know if it's like a buildup in me and I just, I have to release it, but this just feels like something I just have to do. It's like a, a fire inside me, you know, and I just, I have to talk about this stuff. I have to get this off my chest. And I thank you so much for listening. Everybody that listens and that, you know, tunes in and, um, you know, gives me feedback and, and, and just by having this outlet, um, this is very, uh, therapeutic for me, I suppose. I just, it's, it's something that I just love to do and I just love to talk about. But I know that there are a lot of other people that have different opinions and I've gone over a lot of them in, in these theology pits. When I discuss the fetus qua creditor and the fetus quae creditor and that faith consists of notitia, senses, and fiducia and that we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ alone, and it's not by anything that we do. It's, it's all by him and the implications of that. Let's be honest. I'm in a minority. I am. I'm in a minority in believing that and trying to convey that, trying to get my orthopraxy to line up with my orthodoxy. I'm in the minority uh, within my church, not... And, I, and I've talked about this being, you know, in a Presbyterian church and the church that follows the Westminster Confession and the problems that I have with it and problems that, you know, pastors have with it and those sort of things. But this issue of justification by faith, this is the center of the gospel. This is the center of the good news. This is the hinge point. Jesus Christ is the hinge point here. And because of this, and because I hold to it so tightly, and because, you know, I have this understanding of it, a lot of other people don't have this understanding. I hear it all the time. I hear it constantly. I am bombarded with it uh, by Protestants on Facebook, on other social media platforms, on the publications that I read. Protestants that make the same claim that I do. But then when they write and when they talk and when they discuss things and they bring things out, it's, it, it doesn't line up which puts me in a minority. So I'm a minority within Protestantism, within Presbyterian Protestantism, which the denomination that I belong to, the, the, the specific branch of Presbyterianism, I, I believe only has uh, 150,000 uh, members in the, in the congregation in this particular branch of Presbyterianism. Now, out of the, what is it, 2 billion Christians in the world, I'm a minority in a group 
of 150,000. I'm a minority of a minority in this sense. There might be other denominations that would hold to this understanding. And usually, if somebody does hold to this understanding of justification, I can, I can usually spot them. Because they're a lot more laid back when it comes to the understanding of salvation. Maybe we're too relaxed. Maybe we do have this type of lethargic quality. I have this desire to teach. I have this desire to educate, to know. But when it comes to like evangelism, like going to another country type of evangelism, I, I, I don't have that. I don't want to do that. I have no desire to do that at all. And when I say that our justification is forensic, that there's nothing that we can do, and that anything that I try to do, I view as though I'm, in a way, taking glory from God. I'm usurping his authority, what he says, what he does. Maybe putting it to the point where I... I don't know, I, I, I think that I'm somehow aiding or giving glory to myself or something along those lines. I understand that grace is forensic, which means it's God speaking. Because of this, does this mean necessarily that if grace is the unmerited favor of God. How can I possibly hold to a sacrament? How can I possibly hold to a sanative view of grace when it comes to sanctification? Not justification. Justification, past tense, I'm justified. But when it comes to communion, when it comes to taking the body and blood of Christ. Now, the church I belong to does not make the claim that it's the body and blood of Christ. It is simply bread and wine. They don't get into what I believe is an Aristotelian philosophy of, you know, the accidents remain the same, but the substance changes. That, that concept of um, the substance of what is really truly there and the accidents or, or the appearance of it. So when it comes to communion, I hold to what's called a consubstantiation view. Now, my church holds to what would be considered a um, subsubstantiation view that um, the substance, it's, it's a spiritual thing we are remembering the sacrifice that Christ made uh, through the um, through communion whenever we give out communion it is said every time the uh, bread is put in your hand um, this is my body you're told that by uh, well I guess in our church I like it wouldn't be considered a Eucharistic minister but somebody who AIDS in, in the Eucharist because of the number of people. And when you're given the, the cup, it says, you know, um, his blood is shed for you. 
So his body is broken for you. His blood is shed for you. You're reminded of what Christ has done. They don't say this is the body of Christ that you are eating here. They don't say this is the blood that you're drinking. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ shed for you. It's focusing on the remission of sins. What's been done for you. Which is in line with the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement. In the last theology pit, I believe it was. I don't think it was a pit of conception. It might have been one of those. Um, You know, I talked about like the semi-vicarious view. Or, you know, semi-justification by faith. Which is, you know, I have to ask Christ into my heart or when I ask Christ into my heart then I'm saved and you know my faith aids in the same way that a beggar holds out his hand for food and receives it just because he's holding out his hand and receives a gift receives something doesn't mean he worked for it There's no real work going on on his part. He's just simply receiving. He's having the ability to receive. I would consider this an aid in the fact that I feel that it goes against the whole concept of us being dead in our sins and that no one searches for God. Now, That would be my own understanding, my own interpretation, based on my my theology, what I hold, my personal theology. And I understand that my my theology is going to drive my hermeneutic, my the the art and science biblical interpretation, the way that I look at scripture, the way I study it. I recognize that. I think everybody should recognize that. I think everybody should be able to identify what their theology is, what they believe, why they believe it, why other people believe it, and recognize, is this just my bias? Because I really want this to be true. Is that what is making me understand things the way that I'm understanding them? So, if that which saves you is that which sustains you, Meaning, it's all God that justifies you. Isn't it all God that sanctifies you? What then is is the need for a sanative view of something being poured in you, something changing you from the inside out? Where, Where does that come from? I mean, when we talked about the Passover and we talked about eating the lamb... What was going in them wasn't making them more holy. What was going in them was the sin of the people. Remember, it was it was passed down through the uh, through the priests, all the way up. So as you consume something, it it wasn't seen as by taking something in you were getting better. So I struggle with this. The One of the criticisms that I had 
some of the other beliefs was that they were taking, I don't want to say anti-Christian or just, you know, let's say non-Christian understandings, philosophical, Greek philosophy, those sort of things. When it came to the understanding of free will, when it comes to the idea of um, the the works that we do um, gaining us grace. Aren't I saying the same thing when I, when I'm saying that God's grace is, I'm, I'm getting God's grace from taking communion. Now, what's interesting is that I don't hold that same view when it comes to baptism. Baptism, I view more ceremonially. That, not that it's washing away original sin, but that it is bringing someone into the community, washing away the old and bringing in the new. It's purely ceremonial. But yet it's considered a sacrament. Now, because my views line up closer with, with Luther and with Lutheranism, that, that's a sacrament. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are both seen as sacraments. That there's something mysterious that happens. But I don't hold to that. I would hold to it as more of an ordinance, I suppose. Something that we just do because we're, 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 we're told to do it. And yet, I've never had any problems reconciling that. And quite frankly, I've never thought about it until just now. I have never sat down and thought that these two sacraments out of the seven, you know, that um, Roman Catholics hold to, Lutherans would hold to two of them, Anglicans would hold to two of them, and I would supposedly give lip service to the baptism one, but I reject it as a sacrament on the same basis that people reject what I believe and what I think about communion. That, of course, it doesn't wash away original sin. But how is it removed? Well, through Christ. When it comes to my sanctification, am I now changing God's grace. Does God have two kinds of graces? And now I'm changing this grace into a sanative view that's poured in me that makes me more holy. Why can't I just say, no, Jesus has done that already. That's been taken care of. Through him, I am being sanctified. The change that's taking place in me isn't because something for it has been poured into me and is being poured into me continual. That's another thing. When it comes to this idea of the sacramental system, the sanitive understanding of grace being poured in, it's something that's a continuous basis. It's something that I have to keep doing. Logically, it would make sense that the more of this I could get the more holier I could become. And if that's the case, aren't I saying that then 
logically, there are some people who are holier than others. Some people who are more sanctified than others. Now, I think that I am. Positionally, I think everybody would say this, positionally, in the Protestantism, I I should say, positionally, when it comes to justification by faith, we are all positionally righteous with God. We are all on an equal playing field there. But you have people who are much more mature Christians. Um, you know, if you have a church life, you understand that. There are some people that just do sanctification better than others. I, I think I'm one of the worst. I mean, I constantly am slipping up. I don't attribute that to the fact that uh, my church uh, only does communion once a week. It doesn't do it every Sunday. Some denominations have interpreted as often as you do this, and they've taken that to mean as often as you can, every time they gather, every time that there's a church gathering, they do it. Now, I, I mean, I would take that and say every time they do the Passover, that that's what that meant. But, uh, you know, there are other parts of the New Testament that go against that. So I don't really think anybody makes that argument. I think that's why it's been, uh, you know, in... in not an issue, but something that's done every week or as often as possible. And um, in some places, every single day, every single day, that's what they have done. So you think about every single day for 1900 plus years, that's been done. So I struggle with this in myself. Am I even remaining consistent to my own beliefs, to my own teachings? What then do I do with everything that we talked about when it came to the understanding of Passover? It seems like when we talked about the Roman Catholic view that's consistent. It follows suit. It's understandable. All the imagery is there. Everything's going on. The only thing that's different that I'm doing is I'm saying that we should do that because God says that. And we should think that way because this is what God has demonstrated. It It leaves in the the richness of the substance. It's if we did it without knowing that, it would become ritualistic and unimportant. And I think that it is extremely important that we need to understand that we need to understand the why and the importance of it. That God takes sin seriously. But if that's the case, Shouldn't I be advocating for high liturgy all the time? Would this get us in trouble for pushing that hard because we're pushing for an external thing and the meaning can get lost even if you're doing all the outward things? 
So if I believe that we're justified by the faithfulness of Christ alone and not by anything that we do, and if that's the case, then the futility of my holding to a consubstantiation is just that. It's futile. It's pointless. God is not pouring grace into me. Scripture doesn't say that by doing these things, it merits God's grace in any way. There is a passage that does talk about sanctification in, in this sense. Something that, that we do. And it's in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. And it says, Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. So if it's the renewing of my mind, then the problem that I would have here is I would want to slip into... Gnosticism. I would want to slip into Stoic philosophy. I would want to slip into a Manichaeanist understanding. That all I need is the Bible. And I think that that leads down to a path of uh, the Bibli-idolatry. I talked about the worshiping of the Bible instead of the God of the Bible. But the reason why this verse is telling me to renew my mind is so that I can test what is the will of God. I could say, is this the will of God or not? By being more God-minded, God-focused. And I can approve that. And I can say, yeah, that's what it is. And I, I, can, I can agree to it. I can assent to that. And also what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Because I want to be well-pleasing to God. I want to do these things. Now, if the renewing of my mind means understanding all the imagery, the symbolism, the message, the importance, the works that I'm to do, Scripture also says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As though this is something that you can do. But none of it, none of it is saying that by partaking of communion, I am meriting a grace from God. This is a special, special thing. This is a, a different way that God is giving his grace. Instead of grace coming all at once, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm saying it comes all at once and it is doled out also. Yeah, in, in small partitions. This is the big reason why 
people push against this view that I hold to because I think that there is such emphasis on the Eucharist that you can't just give it up and just say that, no, it is simply this. And I'm thinking about churches that do that and how far away from the gospel they get. The more you put down the importance and the meaning behind the Eucharist, where it comes from, back in the Exodus, back in the Genesis, later on into into Revelation, the further you get away from the gospel as a whole, the more you start looking at renewing your mind, that things happen internally, the more individualistic you get, the less corporate you are. The less of the understanding that you are one body, you are one people. Salvation is outside of you. Grace is outside of you. Verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1 of Romans says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable for us to do works in order to assist in our salvation when it comes to sanctification. But again, it feels like it puts us on this road of some are more saved than others. And Paul tells us that no, you're not to do that. You have nothing to boast about. Luther would tell us that a king is no more holy than a peasant. Talking to someone today and saying that the, you know, the pope is no more holy than you are. You're no more holy than the pope. When we say that we're positionally righteous, as though we've done everything right, how do you improve on that? How do you improve on the perfection that's already been given you? The glorification that's already ours. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us that is, is our, it's our promise. It's, our, it's, the, it's the down payment on us. Christ's resurrection is the proof that we too will be resurrected. When I say that I can't do anything, when I get to heaven, if I'm asked the question, why are you here? I have to answer, I don't know. I don't know why me. I don't know why me and why not somebody else. 
I don't know why God chose me but didn't choose somebody else. And so when it comes to my understanding of what's called the order of salvation, the ordo salutis, it has to go in a particular in a, in a particular order. Now this would all be in the past, but it's something that I would say it happens all at once, certainly in the mind of God. But in what order necessarily would it happen? In the book of Acts, it's, it's very big on repent and believe. Have faith. Pistuo is the word that's generally used. It means belief, have faith, have confidence in someone or something, entrust something to another. When we talk about this knowledge in our, our definition of faith, notitia, when we talk about the ascensus, talk about the fiducia, the trust. It's difficult for us to separate all that and say, well, I believe that because I've been saved. When what we experience, what the apostles experienced, what they interpreted as their experience and what they put down, when we look at the Gospels and we look at Acts, that's giving us a, a history. It's a historical narrative. It seems to be that repentance and faith precede justification. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Every time we see in scripture God is doing something and that there's a response that's required. I mean, you think about all the Old Testament and what we were talking about. There always seemed to be a God doing something and then man responding type thing. You know, choose this day whom you will serve. Uh, you know, so if the choice is ours, and this seems to be what's coming out. Again, it becomes a question of why with his justification. Why you know, are we thinking this way? I could say that God allows us to think this way because it really has no bearing on our justification. But what then does it have a basis on? Metaneo is to change one thing, one's thinking and way of life as a result of a change of attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. But what else comes? Well, answer that on the other side of this.
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. When talking about conversion and what's actually going on and what's, what's happening, we would say that we have election, that election occurs first. And then you have the atonement that would take place. And this is all God. Then there would be a calling. And whether this calling is a general calling or a specific calling, that's something else to talk about. We might get into that also. Well, I think necessarily we're going to have to. Then there's a regeneration that has to occur. Then there's a, a conversion aspect of it. You know, what, what we talked about, the, um, the, the aspect of uh, changing our minds and changing our attitude. Then there's the justification that takes place. But does one come before the other? I mean, would regeneration have to come after justification? Would conversion happen before regeneration? Do you have to have faith and repent, and then you are regenerate? Now, I know I've argued against that a lot. But does scripture argue against that? Because it might not. There seem to be places that, you know, lead in, in this direction. If you have to repent, there's a view that we'll get into later. I mean, there is there's a free grace view, which is what I'm talking about. And then there's the Lordship Salvation view, which is that you have to repent of all your sins and turn from your wicked ways and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then you'll be saved. I think I brought that up in um, the, uh, when I was talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith and the, um, the statement of faith that my church has and, and the, those conflicting points. But look in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, verse 37. Now, I have these written in front of me, but I want to jump in my Bible, too. That's what I want to read out of my... I, I use the Net Bible. I like the way that it's worded. It's in my reader's edition here to take out a lot of the... Uh, uh, a lot of the notes, because sometimes the notes can be distracting. All right, so chapter 2, verse 37 and 38. Um, this is after um, Peter gave his sermon at the day of Pentecost, his, his address to the crowd. Their response is this, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were acutely distressed and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do, brothers? Peter said to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, look what else is added in there. Baptism. 
that you must repent and you must be baptized. When we discuss anabaptism, the rebaptizers, this is some of the things that they're looking at. Now, this is under the assumption that Peter has perfect doctrine in this in this way. That this is the difference between something being prescriptive and something being descriptive. Is Luke recording what Peter said or is he recording what we should do? Is Peter saying that this is the way that things should happen? Because to be honest, if Peter believes this, then what Paul says in Romans is going to be really difficult for him to grab a hold of. If Peter is saying that you have to repent, turn from your sins, accept Jesus Christ and be baptized. And Paul is saying, no, no, you are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ alone. Who's right? I wouldn't say that that's a contradiction. A contradiction would be one says repent, the other says don't repent. Paul would never say you're not to repent. He would just say that you know, repentance is because of you know, this. But this would be difficult for Peter. So who concedes? I think it's Peter. I think it's Peter that 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 backs down. I think that what we've read in Acts here is descriptive of what is going on and not prescriptive of the doctrine of justification. Now I know people will argue with me and say that I'm cherry picking now. I am taking God's word out of context. I am just saying that because of my views and that how dare I say that Peter is wrong here and that we are not to follow this. And I understand that. But let's go to what Peter himself says. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, in the verse uh, 15 here, it says... Peter is, is talking about Paul and says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Some things in these letters are hard to understand, things the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do to the rest of the scriptures. It's interesting. Peter not only refers to Paul as a brother, someone who was persecuting the church and killing Christians, but says that he received wisdom and also says that some of the things in the letters that he writes are hard to understand. And furthermore, he says that what Paul writes 
is equal with the Old Testament, is equal with Scripture. Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. So, what Paul's writing, when it comes to theological doctrine, which I would say is his area of expertise, you look at his background, I think that's why the book of Hebrews is attributed to Paul, has kind of a Paul feel to it. I think that Hebrews was actually written by two people, perhaps uh, Apollos and Barnabas, somebody that had a very good knowledge of the Old Testament and somebody that had a commanding grasp of the Greek language because it's very high Greek. It's very good Greek. It's, it's, it's the best in the New Testament. And somebody that under, understood um, how to use it properly and, and, and forcefully, which shows a probably more of a Gentile uh, background. So when I read things like this in the book of Acts, where Peter is addressing, I, I see that as descriptive and not prescriptive because of what Peter says about Paul's writings. So when Paul is talking about doctrine, I hold that interpretively above what Peter says in historical narrative and in and in this preaching, I don't believe that the apostles had perfect knowledge and perfect doctrine. I, and I've talked about this before when it comes to progressive revelation and progressive understanding. Here's an example in the New Testament of this progressive understanding that Paul talks about justification. Peter refers back to Paul in his writings and saying, I know that they're difficult. In some of, and, and especially difficult to Peter, because in, in, I think it's in Galatians, Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians in a, in a book that's going around. Yet Peter's humility is enough to say that Paul speaks wisdom. Pay attention to what Paul says. He has wisdom. It's hard to understand. But ignorant people and people who are unstable will twist it to their own, dis their own destruction. Some, sometimes it says distort, to wrench it, torture it. They will torture scripture to make it say and do what they want it to do. So if I'm being accused of doing that when Peter says, repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and, and, and therefore the view that I hold to is wrong, because I'm relying more heavily on the way that Paul is understanding it. 
I'm allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now, Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. Paul quotes Luke in the same sentence, in the same uh, phrase, in the same argument, back to back, as an example of Scripture. Um, so that means that what Luke wrote is Scripture. Well, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. So if we say this is Scripture, this is where it brings in what's called hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation. This is why hermeneutics and bibliology is so vitally important to what we're doing as, as Christians and understanding salvation. And necessarily when you get to something like the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, understanding, having a proper hermeneutic to understand what scripture is saying by allowing scripture to interpret scripture and allowing things to be brought out in that sense and having a theology that you can then read scripture through and interpret scripture through is very important. I've read things online recently of people who have PhDs from the university of Pittsburgh in religious studies and talking about how studying the scripture has led them to a particular political view. And in discussing what the scriptures were that led them to this particular political view, not only are they taking things out of context, misunderstanding things, but they were quoting what's called variants and some pretty strong known variants of things that should not be in your Bible. They were, would quote stories that are not found in the earliest manuscripts and the most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament. But they're in all of our Bibles. And if you have a good study Bible, you can find what they are. You know exactly what they are now. But they would quote these things. So people are giving credibility to someone not based on their ability as good biblical scholars, as somebody who is good has a good hermeneutical principle or a good hermeneutical practice, you know, practice, but somebody who has paid a lot of money to a university to give them a piece of paper that says they're smart. And by somebody leaning on their PhD to say, I have a PhD, therefore what I say is valid. That's, that's a horribly fallacious argument. You're appealing to your education, but then you don't you, you can't demonstrate it by opening your mouth. Samuel Clemens once said, never let schooling get in the way of a good education. And a lot of times people have a lot of schooling, but they don't have a good education. And it's sad because they could. It's a waste. I remember talking to um, somebody, and I think that they were a... Uh, someone that was attending the University of Pittsburgh and they were going to school for, um, I believe it was electrical engineering. And I asked them what they were studying and what they were learning. And they told me all their courses. And I said, it sounds more like a vocational education. I'm not saying you're getting a bad education. I'm just saying you're not getting a well-rounded education. You're not getting a full education. 
And I fear that this is what happens when people get PhDs in religious studies. They learn about religions, about being religious. And Christianity is a religion. It has a religious aspect to it. But it's much deeper than that. And I know that probably every religion would say that. No, you don't understand. It's this. The difference being is that God is the one doing it all. In all other religions, it's about man trying to do better to become acceptable to God or to become more like God. Christianity is the only religion where God became man so that men could be reconciled to him. That God didn't have to do it, but he did everything and paid the penalty. That's the uniqueness. And, and that's never what I hear. It's never what I hear from, from you know, people who, you know, within a... I mean, this was a, a Protestant person speaking. They said that they were still a Christian, but this is a Protestant worldview. But yet, somebody who claims to have been raised evangelical, somebody who claims to still be a Christian, somebody who claims to have spent their undergraduate, graduate, postgraduate education, all this time, all this money, all this studying on religious education as a Christian and doesn't understand the gospel, can't articulate it. I don't have that level of education. But yet, I'm in the 15th edition, 15th session of this podcast here, explaining to you the understanding of the atonement from all these different views so that you can have a fuller understanding through the contrast that there can be a clarity in what you believe. How is that possible? People consider me to be a smart person. I've, I've heard it enough, so I, I, I guess it's true. I don't. I, I think it's because I know so many people smarter than I am that they're just brilliant with what they do. I would rather deflect you to them. But I, I can just, I can only remember things and regurgitate them. I offer nothing new. And when I struggle with my own views, and I hope this hasn't been a boring theology pit. I'm sitting here thinking about this and how it's just kind of me venting. Um, you're listening to somebody, you know, listening to their own view and struggling with their own view and struggling with this and kind of fighting against the things that are coming at it. But when I have people that say that they are Christians of my particular Protestant faith and that they believe the same thing I believe. But then when you hear them talk, they're saying something totally different. And to me, it sounds like when somebody says, I believe in God and I say, oh, I believe in God too. Tell me what you believe God is. I well, I believe that God is a sunflower. Not any, not all sunflowers, but this particular sunflower growing in my yard. Okay, well, I would say you don't believe in God, that we believe in two different concepts of God, and that, quite frankly, positionally, as a monotheist, you are an atheist. That, I mean, is totally politically incorrect. I understand that, that you don't say things like that. But it's that 
big of a slap in the face to me when somebody says, yes, I believe that you're in the doctrine of justification. And you have to do A, B, C, and D, and then God changes you, and therefore you're saved. That's not the doctrine of justification. It looks like somebody saying, I believe in a sunflower for salvation. That's what it looks like to me. It jumps out that much. I've taught other people this. I've, um, you know, I, of course, talked to my wife a lot about this stuff. My wife has a very strong grasp on the doctrine of justification because I've struggled with this for years to articulate it properly and to think about it. I've talked with a lot of people. And she's to the point now where she can read something and she can hear something and understand it and just say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That doesn't sound like the doctrine of justification. You might call it that, but that's not what it sounds like. It sounds like a semi-justification, something we'll get into, uh, I think, next week. Move into that. Start moving more into the Arminian view. And it's, it's, it's a different view than what I hold. Um, but my view is maybe to my own de- detriment, maybe it's unbalanced, but it's to the point where it's God does everything. We do nothing. And because of this, it's almost like I'm eliminating the entire Old Testament, which says that you should do something. You're aiding in it this way. God's wanting you to do it. It's almost like I'm taking, uh, I'm, I'm becoming a Marcion here uh, from the um, you know third century where I'm, or second century where I'm uh, taking, the, you know, the, the Bible apart and saying, well, no, the Old Testament's, you know, garbage. And so are some of the letters of Paul, except for the pastoral epistles and part of Luke, but throw away the birth narrative. And you know, it, it's almost like I'm doing that. I'm almost saying like, well, it's pointless. And I don't want to say it's pointless. I hold this intention. I hold a lot of this intention. It's something I'm still working through, but I believe that this is the way God does things. That he's God and that's just the way it is. I'm not. I maybe, I mean, it almost reminds me of that scene from Big Trouble in Little China where... Um, Jack Burton is talking to Lopan, and Lopan is is in the form of this old, decrepit man in a wheelchair. And Lopan is just this type of like demigod in the in the in the movie. He's um oops, I just I smacked my microphone here. Um gotta adjust this. Where he is talking to him and he's explaining to him. The, the old man's explaining to him, yes, I need to find a girl with green eyes because, you know, I, 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 I do this. And then, you know, I and he's like, what, you're a god? And he's like, no, I have to appease my god, you know, in order that I can get my, uh, you know, my, my my body back. I can be physical. And but I have a girl, two girls with green eyes so I can I can sacrifice one and I can I can marry the other. And he's like, oh, and then you could be married and you could, you know, Jack Burton's like, oh, and then you could be married and you could rule eternity, you know, with a with a bride and for all for all eternity. You can rule the universe. And he's like, yes, precisely. And he's like, yeah, or check into a mental institution. You think I'm buying this crap? You know, I mean, he just like it's it's one of the funniest things to watch because, you know, it's like everybody in the movie believes in, you know, what's going on, the mysticism and the magic and all this stuff, except for this one guy, Jack Burton, who just refuses to believe it. And, you know, it's it, it's almost like, you know, I, I kind of get to that point where 
everything in the Old Testament is pointing to this type of responsibility that is on man. Something is going on. Something is happening. We are responsible in some way. But what is that way? And then here I stand saying, no, we're not. But yet, I hold to a consubstantiative view where along with the bread and wine is the actual body and blood of Christ. That it's not commingling, that it's more of the hypostatic union of that I, I talked about when you know, Christ is fully God and fully man, not, you know, and, and in the way that the... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the doctrine is articulated in that the, the substance is not, you know, they're not commingling. It's not that he's a humane, but it's, it's a both and, you know, type thing that I'm saying, yes, it's a both and type thing here. And I'm, I'm doing that as though it's something that, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to have the best of both worlds. I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. And I think that the reason why people abandoned it, uh, abandoned it, I'm not even saying that right. They abandoned it and it has been abandoned. And why people give lip service to it, but don't follow through with it is because it's a difficult tension to hold. They say, no, no, no. Look, look, we have for you to believe that you need to throw out all the old time. Let's well, let's let's be totally honest here. If it wasn't for the book of Romans Chapters three and four, I wouldn't have this problem. Let's be honest. If it wasn't for Paul's writings here, this wouldn't be a problem. This understanding of justification, him bringing this out, I don't think that I'd be smart enough to see it the way that he did in bringing this out and explaining this. The way that he articulates articulates it, the way it's put in, the way that he explains it in Galatians, if Paul, and this is why people have made the the argument that there were two Christianities that started up, you know, Peter's version and Paul's version. If it wasn't for Paul, I think that we would still be on the same type of meritous understanding of a works type of, of, of righteousness similar to the Old Testament, that there was stuff that we had to do. that And it's not stuff that we have to do like it's obligated, but stuff that God wants us to do because he gives us blessings for it, you know, in order for things to take place. I think it's a very natural thing. It's very... So there has to be something to it. There has to be something to this. There has to be something more than just... Because, I mean, if that's it, throw out the, the entire Bible and just talk about justification by faith alone. Why allow people to struggle with all of it? There's a reason for it. God knows the reason and only he does. And I think that it's good that all of these different views of the atonement exist because there's truth in all of them. I don't think that one holds the, the 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 truth that it is that this articulation is the only way to believe and that's it i think that it misses out i lean more towards my understanding because i find it to be the most persuasive i find it to be the most consistent 
and the most gracious and the most loving. And maybe it's because of my postmodern epistemology that comes into play. Maybe it's because I have some of the moral example view in there. Maybe I focus a lot on, on the, the love of God, um, you know, the, the justice of God. And maybe I'm just afraid that I, if I hold to something else, I would slip up. When we get to Arminianism and we talk about that and, and the difference between that and Calvinism, I'll say things like, you know, we should behave like an Arminian and believe in a way like an Arminian does. Um, we should hold to a view like a sacramental view, okay? Like a, subst- uh, not a substitutionary view, but a um, you know, sacramental view, I guess, you know, if you're forget what I'm, my, my mind's slipping here. Um, but we should, we should hold to that as though there is stuff that we have to do, but understand that God's already taken care of all of it. But we should, should strive for that holiness. We should strive for that righteousness. We should press because there is an importance in there. There is a benefit in there. It's attention. I have to just leave it at that. I have to just accept that. It's, I mean, I think that it would drive me crazy. I think you might say it's already driving you crazy. You spend an hour talking about how nuts you are with this. And I think I've probably spent this hour turning more people off of the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement because of the logistics behind it that I struggle with. But, there are some things that you can hold to and it, within it, and it, it probably makes more consistent sense. But then again, you know, if you look at all the other stuff, you're like, oh, well, now it doesn't. So in my view, can somebody be saved without repenting? In the view of repentance, in the view of all this stuff that we've gone over, if you say no, someone cannot be saved without repenting, does it mean that that somebody has to change their life before they're saved? Because if people have to change their lives before they're saved, doesn't this mean that salvation is by works? And doesn't it mean that their salvation then hangs on that change that they've made? If you say yes, that someone can be saved without repenting, then what do you do with scriptures that clearly teach that repentance is necessary for salvation? Because it's all through it. Repent and believe. How can we believe that someone can be saved without repenting of their sins? Doesn't this produce what's called antinomianism? And I've been accused of that, being an antinomianist. And this is somebody that's a lawbreaker, somebody that disregards the law, somebody that throws away the entire Old Testament pretty much and says that the law doesn't matter. I don't have to obey the law. Um... My stepdad asked me last night um, about hunting on Sundays because in, in Pennsylvania, I guess it's uh, a bill has gone up, you know, in our in our Congress about allowing hunting to be done on Sunday. And is this right or not? Doesn't this break the commandment of, of keeping the, the Sabbath day holy? And I told him, I said, well, in my in my view, I mean, we have to understand that the Sabbath day is Saturday. First off, uh, if you want to get strict with it. This is why the Seventh-day Adventist, which is what Dr. Ben Carson is, who's, you know, running for uh, president here in 2016. I don't know. Who knows? By the time you hear this, he's probably not running again. I don't know. 
he's probably not running anymore, but he's a seventh day Adventist. They hold, they have you know, church on Saturday. They, they hold, you know, Saturday to a Saturday Sabbath. Um, they have other views as well, but, um, but the Sabbath is Saturday. So if you say you'll know, keep the Sabbath day holy, that means you wouldn't hunt on Saturday, but you could hunt on Sunday. But as Christians, we would say that our holy day is Sunday because that's the day that Christ rose. And so it's, it's the Lord's day. That's why, you know, we refer to it as the Lord's day and not as the Sabbath. But, um, I said, look, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. It's not, the law is a tutor. You know, we're to look at it, to understand it, but Christ is our Sabbath day rest. Every day is the Sabbath day for a Christian because he is our Sabbath rest. He is that fulfillment. We need to understand that when you start, in my opinion, getting away from the understanding of the uh, sacramental system and moving into a governmental system, which we'll talk about uh, next time, and even very deeply into this vicarious substitutionary view. When you get away from that, that's when you start ignoring a lot of the imagery and stuff of the Old Testament. Hey, looks, thanks for hanging with me for this hour of the theology pit. It was probably, I don't know if it was educational for you, but it was just me getting venting and ranting and getting stuff off my chest and struggling with myself. Um, hey, send me an email uh, telling me what you liked or what you didn't like. Samson at samsonstick.com. Um, leave me a note on Facebook and uh, the page of Theology Pit. Um, you know, if you have any advice, of course, give me advice. You know, music's playing here. But uh, I think this is a really great place for me now to close down the pit. Thank you so much for being a part of this. And hopefully next week will be much more educational for everyone. Thank you.